Welcome back to Tundra Talk, everybody. I'm Tyler Friel, and uh, today I have a special guest on the line, uh, my buddy Joseph Von Benedict from down in the States. And uh, Joseph, you are, uh, you, what's your current position? You're all, I know you're, you're a writer, um, but what's your current position? You're editor for Guns and Ammo, was it, or... No, I'm a field editor field for editor. Uh, several different magazines. First, man, thanks for having me on your show, Tyler. <laughs> yeah, no I've problem. enjoyed listening for over a year now. I, I eat your show up. So, uh, yeah, I'm field editor for uh, Peterson's Hunting. I'm the hunting editor for Shooting Times magazine, the reloading editor for Rifle Shooter magazine. I write occasionally for Guns and Ammo, now and then for Field and Stream and so forth. But, uh, Really, I wear a lot of different hats, and uh, man, just patterning myself after my good buddy Tyler, I launched a podcast of my own here about four months ago. So. Yeah, that's uh, it's been really cool seeing that, um, and I really enjoy it. I think uh, it's obviously it's a different style than mine. It's a little bit more organized and and like clean cut than mine is. But uh, I mean, and <laughs> I'm, I'm, not I'm sure saying that's that a compliment. no, I'm saying that as a compliment. <laughs> Mine's kind of super fly by the seat of my pants. A lot of times, I still have no idea what I'm doing. But no, it's. It's been really cool to see you get that off the ground and, and just been pumping out a lot of really good episodes. And, I mean, before we get too far into this, that one's, um, it's just called Backcountry Hunting Podcast, isn't it? It is, yeah. And it really is just centered on, you know, the activities that I grew up doing and that really all my passions kind of orbit around that. You know, I do a lot of writing about precision rifles and hand-loading for you know, most accurate performance and so forth. But really it's all rooted in my desire to be a better backcountry hunter. Yeah. And, uh, and you said, you mentioned, you know, wearing a lot of hats. Um, I can, some people might not understand that, but, and, and they might not understand that being an outdoor rider, you don't make a lot of money usually. So you gotta, you gotta have your toes in a lot of different, in a lot of different ponds, if that makes sense. Boy, you got that right. You know, I hired on, oh, many, many moons ago uh, as an associate editor back in the Peterson Publishing days in Los Angeles. Now, I'm a Southern yeah. Utah boy, and I always swore there was two places I'd never lived, and that was New York City and Los Angeles. <laughs> so, man, I had to swallow some pride when I got offered that job, but it was just too good an opportunity. But it's funny, the, the old gentleman that conducted my first interview, just a prince of a man. His name was Jerry Lee, and he had a, a wealth of experience in the publishing industry and in radio back in the day. And I, uh, he told me, now, you, you know, you've got fairly good writing skills and good credentials and all that, but I want to tell you right up front, you're never going to get rich writing about guns and hunting. If you want to make money, you have to go write about shoes for a style magazine or something like that. And I, I thought about that for about three tenths of a second. And said, "No, I'm I'm fine here." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's the that's the truth. That's that's awesome. Yeah, that uh, it seems like a lot of those publications are still you know based like Outdoor Life's based in New York City, although probably now the majority of the actual editors are wor you know working remotely, and a lot of that's I think probably due to technology. I'm sure just being able to stay connected and, and uh, yeah you know i i think you're right it's the you know the cyber world has much as some of us throwback types hate to admit it has made 
uh, you know, living and working remotely much more possible. And then I think there's another contributing factor, and that's that it, it's gotten really hard to do your job as a gun rider if you live in a state that's very restrictive as far as firearms regulations and even season dates and, you mm-hmm. know, hunting opportunities. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, and that's, if, I, if I'm given credit where credit's due, that's, uh, you know, ni- 90% of my, <laughs> of my, you know, whatever you want to call it, opportunities that I've had to, to write and, and stuff is just where I live. You know, the opportunities we have here, it's kind of the, Alaska's obviously the, uh, like one of the most premier, I consider it one of the most premier, you know, hunting outdoor destinations there is. Yeah, you're not wrong at all. I mean, as far as, as passionate hunters in the lower 48, especially the backcountry crowd type that I tend to gravitate to, Alaska is the holy land, man. If you haven't already made a pilgrimage to Alaska, it's on your list, high on your list to do so. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, which kind of, I guess, brings me to to one of the reasons I really wanted to have you on. I've been getting bugged. Yeah, periodically, um, and it's a good idea about about doing an episode talking about uh, DIY hunts up here. You know, like drop camps, um, flyout hunts, and I think it's a, it's applicable to both residents and non-residents because um, a lot of a lot of us up here do those. You know, if we you know can't afford or don't choose to you know plan our life around owning an airplane, <laughs> you know, we we end up uh, we end up fl- you know hiring guys to fly us out and doing this type of stuff so there's just a it's a pretty like packed jam-packed subject but i think it'd be really cool to have your your perspective on a lot of this as someone who's come up here and done several different types of of trips like that um you know you can speak more to the non-resident side and things to look out for um, but yeah, I mean, real quick run through like the different, the, just a few of the different kind of trips you've done up here. Yeah, man, you're, you're right on the money as far as, uh, it, it takes a lot of planning. The logistics of hunting DIY in Alaska are really challenging for, for somebody, especially traveling from the lower 48. So my first hunt was in Alaska was in 1998. My brother and I and a buddy all just jumped in a big four-door diesel pickup and headed north. We drove up through Canada back in the day when customs just asked, do you have any guns? You say, yep. They say, what kind? You say, well, a 4570 lever action, a 30-06 rifle. And they take a note on their little scratch pad and say, all right, have fun. Yeah. You drive on through. Things have changed, man. But uh, I've done that. Uh, uh, the most recent one I did was on Kodiak Island using a um, a boat transport, not a, a guided trip. So it's, there's some kind of fun uh, complications and times there. For instance, if you're sitting on, you know, if you're cruising the shoreline on this boat, heading to a place where you're going to drop off and hunt, and the captain sees a giant buck, Sitka Blacktail, on the shoreline, if he points it out to you, you can't go shoot it. Because that now he's taken on the role of a guide, right? And yep. he can get fined, a big fine for that sort of thing. So you got to be on your toes and watching. And, and more than once when we were with this outfit, it's, it, it was Alaska Premier Sport Fishing uh, with uh, Travis. Geez, I'm going to have to look up his last name, but just outstanding fella. 
And he'd kind of chuckle and say, you guys missed that big one back there, Waze, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> you know, after it's too late. But that was a ton of fun. It was for Sitka Blacktail. We did a cast and blast. We caught rockfish and a bunch of other types of fish. We shot sea ducks and we shot uh, blacktail deer. And uh, we'll wrap around, I'm sure, and talk more about that. But something that I did not expect with that hunt was, well, we were hunting in pretty rugged terrain because there were a couple of Alaskan residents on board with uh, brown bear tags. And so we were hunting areas with bears and with deer. And as a result, the deer were, well, that, that terrain was just rougher than some of the deer country down there. And my hunting buddy and I, Neil Emery, he's the PR guru at Hornady. Yeah, Neil's, uh, about, Neil's a good guy. Yeah, fantastic guy. About two days into it, we looked at each other and he said, I do believe this is the most difficult deer hunt, most challenging physically deer hunt I've ever been on. And I had to agree. <laughs> you know, it's, it's just something you don't necessarily expect. But oh, probably yeah. the highlight of my do-it-yourself hunting in Alaska was in the fall of 17 when we flew in with Zach Nabel. He, uh, he runs Toke Air Service out mm-hmm. of Toke. Yep. And I shot a just a whopper of a moose. Again, I was hunting with that same hunting partner, Neil Lamry, and he shot a good bull moose as well, and and I got a, a good caribou bull too. And that was just ten days of pure, splendid, awesome backcountry hunting. Yeah, I remember. I remember getting the updates from your brother on that because your brother, I'd helped your brother out on his own DIY trip that uh, at that same time. I remember getting the updates, and it sounded like you guys, you know, basically hit the jackpot. You know, things lined up. You guys had that dream trip that everyone everyone wants to have. <laughs> yeah, you know, we really did. Uh, I, I think, though, there's something worth, and this kind of exemplifies it, something worth noting going into this discussion. Alaska is a huge land, but it's not necessarily teeming with wildlife as far as population numbers. They're there. But sometimes in great moose country, you, you'll go days without seeing an animal. Uh, we... We saw moose the second day, the fourth day, and the ninth day. We saw four mature bulls, and we shot two of them. Uh, that's not a lot of sightings for a 10-day hunt, but by golly, we came out of there with two big bulls. You know, you got to just recognize that sometimes you'll go day after day in this vast, silent land with, without a sign of life. Oh, yeah. And then suddenly, a quarter mile from camp, there's a giant bull grunting down the tree line. Yep, and it, it, it can happen really fast, and it's, you know, moose are one of those animals that's really a low-density animal, um, at least up here anyway, and if it's if you're coming from a, sp- a spot like you're used to hunting whitetails or something, like one, one thing that blew my mind um, a couple years ago was on a, a work trip to Michigan, and, and uh, uh, Tony Hansen, the guy who's running around with down there and, and working on this, I think it was an ATV test we were working on, um, was just telling me this different stuff. Like, yeah, I see that patch of woods there. He's like, there's deer that live their entire lives right there, you know, and, and you hear stats, you know, like some places have however many deer per square mile up here. It's more like how many square miles per moose. <laughs> yeah. Yep. So you got to learn some some different strategies, and it's a patient game, patience game. Uh, just while I'm thinking about it, you know, the thing that helped us most in being successful and taking two bulls out of that 
pretty low density area was using uh, Wayne Kubat's uh, extended day calling technique. Uh, he did a video, a couple of videos called Love, Thunder, and Bull. Great yeah. name. But the number two one is the one that I like the best because the footage is a little better. It's more recent, yeah. obviously. And he goes in depth into all the stuff he covered in the first edition, plus a whole bunch more. And man, it, it gives you a whole different perspective on calling. And moose are a unique animal to call. They often respond very slowly, but from great distances. So you've mm -hmm. got to give them time to get to you. Yep, and that's, I mean, that's kind of, I know I've, on different episodes I've talked about that before, moose calling can be, I mean, it's it's boring until it's not, basically. <laughs> and it, right. But I, I mean, I've seen so many times, you know, and, and for, for guys, a lot of times that, you know, I say like us, and I have tendencies to get impatient and, and you know, uh, go walk. You, you, your inclination a lot of times is if, if you're calling and calling and calling, and nothing's happening. Well, something's wrong. You got to go try a different spot or whatever. And I, you know, I don't know how many times it's like been the next day, you know, you're, you're over glassing somewhere else and there's a bull standing right where you were calling the night before. Yeah. You know, I mean, they, or, or two days before, um, I mean, we've been calling and calling and then get up an airplane later that day and there's a bull several miles you know and, and where you're flying there's a bull set you cut a bull several miles away just trucking straight to where you were calling from i mean it, it happens too many times to be coincidence <laughs> yeah no doubt you know that they say that a moose's a big bull's antlers act as a kind of a megaphone you know, gathers sound and pipes it down into their hearing and, and until you think about the fact that a lot of sound is actually gathered by your skeletal frame, oddly enough, I was visiting with an audiologist about this just this week. A lot of it's picked up by that kind of rounded bone behind your ear. That's why it's so important to use ear muffs when you're shooting a really blasty rifle, say with a break or whatever, and doing a lot of shooting is because you're actually picking up a lot of those sound waves through that bone. Well, I was always skeptical that a moose could hear calling, you know, two miles, three miles. Some people even say as much as five miles away from you in the right conditions. But I had an experience when I was packing my bull out that showed me pretty clearly that, yeah, that's possible. I was, it was my last load and I was carrying the rack and I was just, I didn't even have it on a pack. I had him over my shoulders and my shoulders were sore enough that it made me regret doing that later, but I was maybe a quarter mile from camp walking with that, uh, you know, the rack just propped over one shoulder and the base of one antler was firmly against that bone behind my right ear. Yep. When back in camp, my buddy's in reach went, Bring! you know, how that little, yep. little tiny sound they make. And, and it's so quiet. Usually you're not worried about game ever hearing it. I'll be darned if I didn't hear that clear as a bell coming right down through that moose antler and into my skull and hitting my my auditory system from like a quarter mile. Wow. It was amazing. Yeah. Well, it makes sense because, you know, I mean, all you got to do is you hear them raking and you, you and get a sense for the vibration that those antlers can channel, you know, so it, like it doesn't take, it doesn't take much, much raking for you to be, you know, with our ears to be able to hear a bull raking from a mile away you know it's it's not like they're just thrashing and thrashing all they got to do is just rake that thing down a tree and you can hear it i mean 
So that's that's there's got to be something to that. I I know absolutely they can they can hear so well, and that's you know like you you, you hear them grunting, and most of the time those gr- those bull grunts are really soft. You know, and if conditions aren't right, it's hard for me to pick them up. You know, ha- it seems like half the time when I start hearing a bull grunt, and I always second guess myself. You know, to you know, I wonder if I'm just imagining it. It's that soft. Yeah, I've done that too. Yeah, good stuff, man. But um, I got to say, one of the most common things I get from guys dreaming about Alaska down here in the U.S. Well, you know, we always talk about species, and moose is one of the big ones. I think it's maybe in part because they're just so huge. You know, people dream about shooting maybe arguably with bison, you know, the largest land mammal that still roams the American continent. But the comment I get from most guys is, man, that's on my bucket list. I've, I've got like this three-year plan and I'm going to do it. And my response invariably is do it now. Start your plan and then do it now because you're never going to get younger. And if you keep putting it off and putting it off, I think people are a little bit intimidated by the logistical challenges of getting to Alaska and then hunting there successfully in unknown terrain, unknown types of habitat for an unfamiliar species. Oh, Do you yeah. see that? Oh, I see it big time. I mean, I see it with myself. Shoot, you know, there's there's a lot of country, you know, a lot of places just in within Alaska, and I live here right in the middle of the state that I would love to go moose hunting, but, you know, it's something that even I would have to, have to plan for quite a ways out because the logistics, even to get in... There's a, a moose hunting spot that I took, you know, our mutual buddy Adam Weatherby to last year, and it's a spot I'm working on developing. Um, and even that, that's not that far away, and it's still like I got to think. All right, got to haul a four wheeler up on the boat, got to haul this, that, you know, just logistics. Like you said earlier, hunting Alaska is lo- is a logistical. Ch- challenge. I mean, that's that's a lot of the challenges. Is you know finding a decent kind of honey hole where there's there is some game and getting there and getting everything there and getting everything out is probably the biggest challenge and i'm glad you kind of led into that planning because if you're especially if you're wanting to come up here and hunt and you know two three years of, of planning is not is not unreasonable you know i think that's very realistic especially because it's such a a big time and time and money investment that and you may only get to do it once or twice, um, that you really want to do it justice. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of a wash cause you could come up here on a last minute plan, still spend just as much money and, and have a tear, you know, and have a lesser quality hunt, if that makes sense. Um, so yeah, I mean, planning something to start way out and even just as far as we're talking, we're talking transporters, a lot of the good transporters, you know, they're booked out usually almost a year. A lot of the moose guys, moose and caribou guys will book out as soon as they open bookings. And some of them, like you guys flew with Zach. I know the guys at 40 mile air, they have a waiting list to get, to get on, you know, moose and caribou drops. And I mean, that's no joke. Like where if you get, you get a call and you get a slot, you better take it and you better keep it every year unless you don't want to have it again. 
Yep, yep. Uh, Zach's the same way. We got on the first time with him uh, through a cancellation and managed to slide into a, 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 you know, a slot that opened up. And uh, that's something I look for, actually, when looking for a transport service, especially the air taxis. If they have re- – uh, well, let me back up. Most of these guys give their repeat customers first crack at rebooking, right, which I think is the right way to do business. And so if you've got a guy that's almost always booking full with repeat customers as soon as they open their bookings, that's a good sign. Yep. It means it's going to be hard to hunt with them, but, man – He's doing it right. And then if you add another dimension and find out that he's rebooking with resident hunters, Alaska residents are rebooking with him year after year, that's a really good sign because those guys, I mean, you guys are on the spot. It's a little easier for you to talk with people and research and so forth than it is for us, you know, gazing and admiring from afar. And so, and also you tend to, to not have to spend as much money to do it. But if, if Alaska residents are willing to spend premium dollars for a premium pilot every year, it means, by golly, he's doing something right. Yeah. And, you know, I don't think it's necessarily just safety. That's probably the main thing you want to look for in a pilot. You, want, you don't want to fly with a cowboy, right? And number two is somebody that will put you in a good spot. Most of these pilots, if they're if they're flying into an area that is now, this is just in my experience. You have a lot more, and if I if I give some incorrect information, Tyler, you know, set me straight here. Oh, I, oh, I will. <laughs> <laughs> I'll count on it. So most of the guys I've flown with, if if you're wanting to go into an area and you've picked a lake, and they know that there's an outfitter hunting that, or that there's another air taxi that's already dropping somebody in there on that same time frame, they won't put you there. They kind of have this, you know, honor code amongst them that they don't step on each other's toes too much. But the best bush pilots, somebody like Zach Nabel with Toke Air Service, they do a lot of research and they find little hidey holes that nobody else is using. They find a way to get in there and land safely, even if it requires, you know, a week-long backpacking trip to get into a certain basin and basically build a safe landing strip, if yep. you want to call it that, you know, it's, yep. it's <laughs> which it, really you know, involves strip. Yeah. Which involves, you know, sometimes cutting a little brush, but a lot of times yeah. it's just moving rocks, moving big that's, rocks out of the way. Yep. That's the biggest one. But anyway, these guys will get in there and they'll find and work up these little areas that nobody else is using. And it's worth paying a premium for that. You can get a pilot that'll fly you out to X popular lake or river or whatever and plant you among a dozen other camps, resident and non-residents, and you're all bumping shoulders and trying to call moose away from each other and so forth. That's You can do that for a lot less money, but if you find a guy that'll put you in legitimate remote country with a good game population, yeah, it's worth paying because you're going to have a better hunt and you're not going to see anybody else. Yeah, and I found there's there's also a balance, um, especially being a resident. Sometimes you get ideas, you know, you get ideas of spots you want to you want to go that are m- maybe nece- not necessarily on a pilot's radar. And I think it's it's a balance because I would be a little leery of of booking with a guy that just no questions asked will fly you anywhere you you want to go. Um, on one hand, that's that's 
you know, could be a good thing, but it also could mean that, eh, like it's almost a little bit of desperation. Um, well, maybe not desperation, but like, all right, yeah, you know, like really eager to book. So we'll take you wherever you want to go. Um, it's just something, yeah. something to look at, take with a grain of salt. Cause there's something to be said for, you know, for guys that, that have a bunch of holes in their back pocket, you know, I, and I don't know, maybe I'm not the idea I'm wanting to get at is just to, to find a balance. You don't want someone who's just, all right, you can pick from these three spots and that's it. And, you know, some of the operators that are a little jaded and, you know, don't really care that much if you have a good hunt or not, um, will be like that. But it's a, it's a balance because some guys like, like Zach, they, they put their effort into finding these good little spots. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't let it be a turnoff if the guy says, well, we're not, you know, we can't just take you anywhere you want to go, but, but I have these different spots that are all good. Um, if that makes sense. Cause a lot of times those guys are, they're, you know, they're dropping a lot of people and picking up, seeing results and they kind of get a good idea for what's going on on a pretty widespread level. Like, you know, Taj and Eric down at Island Air on Kodiak, you know, the time, a lot of times that I've, I've flown with them, it's just like, well, I mean, you guys just take me to a spot that, that you think will be good. Cause with local eyes on it every day, you know, those guys, a lot of times will have an idea. So that's maybe a complicated way to not really say anything other than. <laughs> no, I got your drift. Yeah. I mean, anytime you, you're, you know, you find a pilot that you connect with and you can trust and, and you, you can do that. It's awesome. Like with, uh, uh, Taj, you know, if, if, if he's got kind of a gut feeling that he could put you down on a certain lake and you're on Kodiak and you're going to get into great blacktails, man, don't, don't try and butt heads with him on that. I'd go with him. Yeah. And, and being flexible too, you know, cause sometimes, especially Kodiak's a little bit of a unique case cause there, you know, a few operators and sometimes the spot you're planning on going already has, you know, someone from another air service there. So, you know, in any, any kind of, you know, fly out trip, flexibility is, is a must, whether that's from being okay, you know, planning some weather days in there and just kind of being willing to go with the flow. You know, most of those guys, they don't, they don't want to hose you over, but I guess what I was was trying to say is for non-residents, it's, it would be very good to go with an established guy. And, And most of those guys are willing to talk to you. Like, you know, we have, that tell, let you know that they have good spots. They'll be willing to, to put you in because really, I mean, you're, you're just trusting the air service that they, that they do have those good spots. Um, but yeah, I'm trying to, trying to think of what there was, there was something I was going to tie into because there's one in particular in Fairbanks that we've flown with before. That's, that's a lot like that. They're pretty rigid and I guess like 40 mile. And I think Zach's probably the same way. Um, they'll be very, and a good air service will be very clear with their expectations of you. And, you know, they'll just play as they say, all right, we, we can do this, this, and this, but not this. Um, they'll let you know what gear you can bring and, and not, you know, they'll a lot of times give you a weight limit and you better stick to it. Um, Yo, yeah. cause it's all for a reason and maybe I'm yep. getting a little in the weeds there, but, but and maybe you can elaborate on that too, but 
as a non, you know, especially as a non-resident, sometimes you don't know what all really to expect. Um, but a good air service will pretty much already, you know, have have an established way they operate and are willing to to tell you about that and break it down for you if you you get a hold of a guy. Well, you know, <laughs> you know, we can we can find the area or. Or, yeah. uh, or, you know, well, we'll, we'll figure out some of those things, which you can pack when you get here. That's kind of a little bit, a little bit of a red flag, not necessarily a deal breaker, but something you want to pay attention to. Yeah, sure. Now, you know, something, uh, well, man, I've got so many different questions for you popping up in my head as we talk, yeah, but, no, uh, uh, one thing, well, let me say this first. The good pilots will send you an information packet, either you know via email or the mail or whatever. Read it, every word of it, because they'll usually address everything from choosing gear to what type of boots you should wear for the terrain you're going into yep. and, uh, and so forth. Uh, I made the mistake on, on my first flying trip, it was actually with Zach, to not read a couple of them. I got there and I asked questions and he looked at me and I, I suddenly felt pretty dumb because I realized, you know what? He probably answered all those questions for yeah. me already. <laughs> I just read the material. Anyway, uh, we were talking about, you know, how a good pilot can put you down in a good area uh, a few minutes ago. Let me back up. Something I still still battle with is researching a good area in Alaska. What do you suggest for guys that? I mean, they're coming into a cold. They don't have connections up there. They got no friends, yep. you know, living up there or whatnot. And they want to hunt, you know, whatever type of animal on their own. And maybe we should clarify that up front. If you're a DIY guy that's not an Alaska resident, that means certain species are off the plate, right? Mm-hmm. Doll sheep, brown bear, grizzly bear, mountain goat. Um, are there any others? What about muskox? Um Muskox is kind of an interesting one because I think the only hunt open to none, well, I could be wrong. The main muskox hunt is a draw tag that you have to, you may, non-residents may have to hire a guide, but I don't, it's not, I don't think that's required by law. I think it's a land use issue, not necessarily like a state game statute. Um, okay. So fair that enough. can be a little that I don't totally I I haven't had any reason to really educate myself on that one. So sure. So let's just I mean the the primary species then are going to be moose, caribou, black bear, and probably Sitka blacktail in there at some point. Yep. And they're such different species that you know inhabit different types of terrain and sometimes different parts of the Alaska landscape. Um, what do you recommend for guys coming in and researching and just trying to find a part of Alaska to go to? Because Alaska is a big dang place. It is. Um, probably the biggest thing is to pick one ant, one species you want to focus on. Um, you know, you guys obviously there's there's some that tend to overlap sometimes. Um, and like you, you guys got two moose and a really nice caribou and, and moose and caribou are one of those that, you know, I guess that, you know, Joe off the street would imagine that you go moose hunting, you could easily shoot a caribou too. And a lot of times that's the case. A lot of times it's not. What I would do is say, what I would say is, is pick the species you want to focus on. And if you end up in an area, 
an area that has both, you know, then that's, that's even better. But, um, I think that's a mistake or maybe not mistake people make, but at least, you know, when you're sitting there daydreaming about all the animals you're going to kill, it's easy to go down that route of, of halfway expecting chances at more than one species. And really, if you want to be successful, I would say focus on one. And if you get opportunities at others, that's great. Um, so. That's good advice. And, and it's probably important to point out too, that a lot of the seasons run concurrent. So when I did that moose hunt, I had a moose tag, a garibou tag, a black bear tag, and a wolf tag that were all valid for the entire 10 days I was in the back country. Yep. Yeah. And a lot of those, a lot of those do run concurrent. And, uh, so it can be tempting. It can lead you into trying a, a multi-species hunt. And I guess, I don't know if this is where you're going with it, but for me, the danger of that is you try and find an area that has both. You're going to lower your chances for premium crack at either species. Let's say, you know, you're trying for two. Yeah, I would, I would say so. And a lot of times, I mean, and, and one of the things that, that some people don't realize, especially if you've never done it before, is it's just everything takes so much time, you know, even on a, on a, on a drop camp where all you can do is walk. I mean, it takes time, you know, you shoot a moose half a mile from your camp. It's going to take you a while to get him all, all back to camp. And, uh, it's not just like a, you know, a lot of hunting in, in the lower 48 where, you know, you're leaving from your house every morning to go hunting and you get something, you load it up in the truck, get back and you go hunt something else the next day. Um, which also is kind of part of the logistics of it, whether it's, you know, carrying it on your back or, or whatnot. So, I mean, the, yeah. Yeah, the biggest thing I think is just, is picking one, picking one to focus on, and then you can start narrowing down the regions you may want to hunt. Um, the, the Alaska fishing game offices are usually, you know, usually helpful in pointing you in the right direction. Some of the resources they have, um, that's not the be all end all, but, but usually they're pretty helpful. And, uh, talking to just different air services in the region, like, you know, you want to, you think, you know, somewhere out of, out of Eastern Alaska, you may want to hunt moose or caribou. And so you give a cut, you know, give air services a call and toke. It's not that there's not that many places. So it's, it's not terribly difficult to narrow down a few, you know, air charter options for different regions, you know, whether it's out of Fairbanks or Anchorage or, you know, Bethel or somewhere out there in those different regions, you can kind of, especially if you start a couple of years ahead of time, that's plenty of time to, to poke around and get an idea for what options you might have in different regions and just narrow it down from there. Yeah. It takes a lot of research. I mean, it's, it's funny to say so, but I'd almost say, look, your, your best attribute is going to be getting obsessive about it so that you think about it while you're at work. You dream about it at night and, you know, every second where you're not spending time with your family or other more prior, important priorities, you're doing research online or reading about it and so forth. You'll eventually just start absorbing a knowledge base for, for this species and then kind of find, you know, figuring out an area you want to hunt. For me, it's a funny thing. You know, you mentioned calling the, the wildlife, division wildlife or fishing game, whatever you want to call it. And talking to them, like most states, it's kind of a crapshoot according to what 
biologist or agent you get, some of them are downright short with you. Oh, they yeah. don't necessarily want non-residents coming in. Others can be really helpful. But what I've found is you just got to pick your questions. Don't call them up and say, hey, where should I hunt? Yep. What you want to <laughs> do is ask things like, okay, uh, you know, I'm looking at three different regions. This is what they are. Do you mind just telling me what your current population estimates are in those? So yeah. then they just give you hard numbers and you can say, all right, well, these three units are, you know, let's say they're roughly the same size. This one has three times as many moose. That's a good thing. Another thing to ask is whether or not, if you're going real deep, whether or not you, you're allowed to bone out the meat. Because a lot of areas in Alaska, you have to leave the meat on the bone for your quarters and your ribs yep. and everything. That complicates things, especially if you're trying to go in with a super cub. It's hard to get a 160-pound moose hindquarter in and out of a super cub. A lot of pilots just won't do it. Yep. Yep. And, Some of those, uh, I think 40-mile requires you debone the whole moose. Yep. So that means you have to go into a unit that uh, the regulations allow you to debone it. Yep. Uh, another thing to uh, to look for is... Um, Geez, lost my train of thought right there. It was an important one, dang it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure we'll be able to circle back to it. That's never happened to me before. Never. If the mic just goes silent, then you kind of... <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, I got it. I'm back. Okay, so a lot of biologists, uh, the nicer ones that will really give you a, a solid place to go, like go you know, this road and take that trailhead and hunt that drainage, they're great. You got to appreciate that they're at least trying, but man, they tell a lot of people the same thing. I've yep. hunted, for instance, black bears in Idaho where I'm from Utah, right? Go up there, you can buy an over-the-counter bear tag and you get into this drainage and you're thinking, man, this is going to be awesome. And you see 20 other trucks on the road the night before opening day and all of them have Utah plates and all of them have been told to come hunt this drainage. <laughs> you're like, holy smokes, this sucks. So you end up, if you're smart, you pack up pretty quick and you look at some topo maps and you pick another little spot that looks more obscure and is a little harder to get to. And you go over there and in a seven-day hunt, maybe you see one Idaho local yeah. and you get into a lot more bears, you know. So you got to always look at, at freely given suggestions with a little bit of not skepticism, but just recognition that you're probably going to be in there with other guys that have the same information. Yeah, that, and that's a good thing to to note about that because, yeah, any like free information like that, that's they're telling the next guy that comes in too, and it's not them being malicious. It's just you know they you know, and half I mean three quarters of the people that that come do that are just kicking the tires anyway. I got a cough. <coughs> Excuse me, but still got uh, both lungs. I I still do. I had something <laughs> something in so, my throat there. Yeah, and the funny thing is, often those areas can be really good areas. Maybe biologists know that there's twenty percent more bears in that drainage per square mile than anywhere else, and they want help thinning them a little bit or whatever. The trouble is not the fact. That that you know, it's not about the quality of the bear population. It's about the pressure that you're encountering. So yeah. when I call a division of wildlife resources, I always try and ask specific you know, questions that then help me make a decision, such as what's the population? What's your estimated bull to cow ratio? 
what's the harvest success on hunters that you see going in there if if a hunt report is is required and if i'm not mistaken it is in most of alaska yeah, right yeah it is so you can get that information. It may be a year or three old, but you can get some good, solid information that can then guide you in making a, a good decision. Yeah, and that's a good mentality to approach it with. Um, you know, if you're gonna if you're gonna go through the effort to come up here and all the planning and stuff, you don't. Ju- you know, it's kind of like I don't know. It doesn't really do it justice just to go to you know, go through all that, then just go where the biologist told you. I mean, it, it, like I said, it's just good information to have. And if you can have specific questions to help you make your decision, um, and just taking, taking everything with a grain of salt, um, especially like, I don't know, I would say, I would say avoid forums. (laughs) Um, not because there's not good information on there because there is, but it, it gets so convoluted with terrible information that, I mean, I don't know, it's just a non-starter for me. Sure. Yeah. I I actually don't frequent forums too much. I, <laughs> me either. I'm, I'm not that old, but I'm a bit of a throwback and I trust the written word. And part of it's because anything that gets published in a good magazine has been vetted and peer-reviewed by editors and so forth. So you can usually be reasonably certain that it's accurate. Most of the so, time, I'm trying. Yeah, most I'm, of the time, <laughs> but yeah, it's uh, which I don't know that why that reminds me. I I this is totally off topic, but I got into collecting you know old antique issues of outdoor life, and it's fun, interesting reading reading through some of that old stuff. Like there was one old article. I it, it wasn't anybody notable. There was an article about guys that were on a Brooks range hunt years and years ago. And it was, there was three pictures of a guy of the eat what well, picture of each of the guys with a grizzly bear and it's so-and-so and his grizzly bear and so-and-so and his grizzly bear specifically saying that. And I can tell it's the same grizzly bear on the same rock, <laughs> <laughs> you know? So apparently the, the fake it till you make it, you know, didn't just start with Instagram. <laughs> Yeah, that's funny. I have not seen that, but I can see how it could have, could have happened, you know. Yeah, like there was one there was another one that that at least I remember, I need to go back and look at it again, but it was uh, a Fred Bear one, you know, with a mountain goat and says, "Oh, the Billy this, that." And I'm like, "That sure looks like a nanny to me." <laughs> not that I care, but it it's just interesting how you know, I guess who's going to question Fred Bear back in the sixties or the it was like yeah. in the I think the issue was from the fifties, but sure. not to knock anybody. I, that just reminded me of of that the printed word. Um, you know, sometimes though, having worked for six years as an in house editor, sometimes what happens is captions get screwed up or photos get used twice for two different spots. Or that, that is very you know, yeah. Especially back in the day when you got somebody back there in the back with an exacto knife cutting out little phrases and pasting them in as as captions and gluing photographs and then basically using a glorified Xerox to create the whole layout. Man, you know, some yeah. I would almost say more often the mistakes were made in the layout process than in 
you know, the accuracy of the, the article yeah. itself, assuming a legitimate, you know, quality writer. And that's a fair, and that's a fair thing. I don't know why I hadn't really put more, put more thought into that side of it. Cause I mean, I still occasionally will have a caption or a phrase that, you know, somewhere between like my approving the final copy and it going to print, um, gets a little messed up. But, uh, so yeah, that, that, could very well be that. Anyway, back on <laughs> back, <laughs> back on, to hunting Alaska. Back to hunting Alaska. Um, Let me ask this: so yeah. a, a big challenge that a lot of us coming up from the lower forty-eight deal with uh, for moose is the whole antler size restriction. Whether you got to have three or four brow tines or fifty-inch minimum or whatever. Yeah. What do you tell guys that are facing that? I'd say. Don't shoot them if they don't have the brow tines or, you know, that, that's, that's the safest bet. And even, I mean, sometimes like there's some guys that are really good at it and can pin a bull, you know, and be like, nah, he's 52 and, and they're within an inch, but you don't, you know, you don't, you could be a, you know, a quarter inch shy of 50. And if you don't have the brow tines and you get, but you get caught, you're going to get a ticket. Um, even though I think by league, by I think at least the statute was that they could give you some leeway, but they don't make a habit of giving any leeway because it it just is going to affect effectively. You know, if they had say could give you you know an inch of leeway, then it just effectively makes it a forty nine inch thing if they made a habit of that. Um, yeah, right. So that's the biggest thing is just study up on what on and. There's since they make these restrictions, they've they've gotten better about getting more information out. You know what is a point, what's not a point, what's a brow tine, what's not a brow tine. Um, that's the easiest one is just going by brow tines. You know, even I I'm not great at you know a bull that's like right on the line of fifty. You know, eh, till they get to be about fifty five and get a really get a certain look to them um i wouldn't be comfortable shooting them i mean i know like that that one bull i saw with adam last year because although it was any bull unit for me it was uh 50 you know four brow tines or 50 plus for him and all i you know the moose those moose all it takes is one look at them and you know they're over 50 they're generally going to be in the like 60 inch range yeah i was gonna ask about that next because you know, there are some bulls, you, you'll occasionally see a giant bull with two brow tines on each side, but he's dang 64 inches wide. They're yeah. almost like a, there's no question, right? Yeah. But, and then one thing that that is interesting too, and you'll, you'll hear guys say this is, you know, you, you want to, if you're, you're trying to judge them, you know, count brow tines, obviously you want them fa- a good, good look at, at them facing you, um, because they they always look bigger running away, like right something about just the way they look running away. They always look bigger. Um, so yeah, I mean that, and you re you it's I don't know unless you unless else. you are sure sure it's best just to count brow tines because that's and that's one way to ruin your entire experience big time. Even if you do the right thing and turn it in. Yeah, no kidding. That can leave a real sour taste in your mouth, I imagine. Uh, You know, another thing you can do 
is, especially for guys coming after their first moose, pick an area that doesn't have an antler restriction. That, yep. that area where I shot my great big bull, he's 62 wide, but just stupid heavy with drop tines and, and non-typical stuff and incredible mass and all that. But that actually wasn't any bull area. I could have shot a spike up there legally. Yep. And you get to bone the meat off, so they're easier to pack out. Yep. Uh, so that's something they're, they're not as common, but you can find those units in Alaska and it takes all the pressure off. If you see a bull and you want to shoot him, by golly, go to it. Yeah. And that's, that is a very good point. You know, like that's, this, it was the same thing, the area, um, I helped, helped your brother arm go into and, uh, he shot a beautiful bull too, but even that one, like he was barely 50 inch. I can't remember. If he had three, I think he had three brow tines. So there's some areas that are three brow tine or 50 and some that are four. Just depends on, I think, the genetics of the area and how they set up that rule. But he was an any- I think, yeah, I think his was a three on one and four on the other. So he was pretty well covered. Yeah. Um, but as far as just not considering brow points, he was a bull you a lot of guys would look at and be like, oh, yeah, he's 50, no question about it. And he was, but barely. He just, he was a bull that really filled out that 50 inches. You know, he had, he had nice wide paddles, good brows. Um, whereas the bull I killed after he left just around town here was 50 inches, but he was more of a, like a 44, 45 inch bull with one sticker point that cheated him into 50 inches. Sure. You know, so yeah. And it, it just, it's that, I think a lot of times not having the stress of having to worry about it, especially on your own. If you're not, you know, if you're not going hunting with a buddy that has a lot of moose hunting experience and judging experience, man, just not having to worry about it would give you a much more enjoyable time rather than have to, to stress over, you know, have, it's usually not going to be bull after bull coming in, but sometimes you see multiple moose. And if you're just spending all your days stressing over whether or not you should shoot this bull or wondering for forever, if you should have shot that one. I mean, if that's, if that's something that, that would bug a guy, man, it, you know, it's just a lot of times worth not having that stressor. Yeah. You know, I've got a good buddy, Joe Kennedy. In fact, he's been on a lot of hunts with me for as long as I can remember, but he did a Alaska, fly in drop count hunt, hunt with his dad here several years ago and at one point he neither of them shot a bull at one point they called a moose for a mile and a half across a basin and it came in and walked past them displaying you know strutting tipping yep. its antlers and all that at like 35 yards for five minutes and they just couldn't guarantee to themselves that he was over 50 in retrospect he says really i think he was about 53 but we just weren't sure and to this day he talks about that you know the regret what if i you know maybe i should have shot him anyway so yeah it's a way to take some pressure off your plate if you're going in for the first time it's just hunting where any bull is legal but uh, i have another question about antler configuration i have heard some guys speculating that the brow tine restriction is kind of shooting a certain gene pool out of a lot of the the moose populations where it's harder and harder to find a bull with a lot of brows on both sides and you're seeing more and more you know big bulls with forked brows just two times what do you think of that i don't know i've heard some of those same rumblings um 
uh, not too far. A lot of it's down, down south. Um, and I guess I, I don't have the firsthand experience to know whether or not that's true, but it makes sense. Um, cause if, you know, if you're a lot of guys and you can't blame them, you know, they're just wanting a legal bull to throw in the freezer. Um, and I'm typically, uh, if it's brown, it's down type of moose hunter, you know, I, sheep hunting is kind of my thing that I get preoccupied with. So come moose season, the first thing with ant, you know, in any bull area, the first thing with antlers is getting shot. Um, so you can't, you know, it would make sense that bulls that, especially bulls that develop a lot of brow tines earlier, you know, before they're like fully big and mature and, you know, even hit 50. I mean, there's, there's plenty of guys that'll shoot a, a four brow tine, or if it's a three area, shoot a three brow tine moose, that's 40 inches without even thinking twice about it. And you can't blame them, you know, no. I don't blame them at all. Um, but I, I think there could be something to that. I think some of the issue, I mean, more of the issue, the issue where we've been at, at least there's some, some, obviously some debate to it, but they, there's quite a few, several years where they, you know, gave out thousands of cow permits. I don't know how many cows they, they ended up killing, um, but it's definitely put a dent in the moose around here for sure, um, mm. you know. And and without getting too into either side of that debate, it really it really really put a lot of people off. You know, some of the old timers saying that you know the guy that was kind of responsible for the whole theory and and why they issued all those permits. You know, saying oh they had no idea what it used to be like. <laughs> So, but there, there is a lot of, there is a lot of factors that go into that. So, um, that's more what we, what I, we talk about and deal with up here rather than the the antler point restrictions, but that, that could very well be, be a thing. And hopefully, you know, if, if it is that they can figure it out and, and let that kind of recover, come up with, come up with some sort of solution that, you know, allows the most people, the, the largest amount of people to fill their freezers while maintaining a, a stable population that's that's not declining, you know what I mean? Yeah, with some older age class bulls in it. Yeah. So, um, man, I, <laughs> I've, I've got a lot of different advice for for hunters wanting to come up from the lower 48, less so obviously for residents because most of them have more experience than me. But what, like, what sort of uh, questions do you get from guys that I might be able to help you answer? Well, and I guess one of the thing, you know, I mean, a lot of it we've covered because a lot of the questions I get are pretty, ba- you know, fairly basic stuff that I think we've covered. One thing that I like to, that I got in my notes and I want to stress to people is to take your time and, and consider like there's several unforeseen expenses that I think that a lot of guys, I call them unforeseen because I think a lot of people don't think about it. Um, but several things like what, you know, a, I guess your, your biggest pre-planning thing, is leaving some time on either end of your hunt, you know, more so I'd say even on the back end, you know, a lot of guys, you get out of the field, you're excited to get back home, um, and tell everybody about it, but you got to leave enough time to do, to deal with your meat and your trophy. 
Um, and in a second, yeah, you can probably, sure. I want you to go over like how, you know, you guys did that, but you know, you go on a fly in and shoot a moose, you, you know, <laughs> you're going to get, as soon as you get back, they're going to hear you go. You're going to have, you know, six, 700 pounds of meat and you're going to have to be the one to deal with it. You know, so it's, you want to make sure ahead of time that you, you have a plan for what you're going to do and a backup to that plan, I would say, you know, whether it's, whether it's getting it processed somewhere here in Alaska, um, buying a few supplies and cutting and wrapping it yourself. Um, it's a big deal, you know, cause it's, it's a lot of meat and it's not cheap. And I think if it, that's one thing that if people don't account for, for guys that are kind of scrapping and saving their pennies, that's something you need to account for. Cause it will, whether it's, whether it's giving some of it away or shipping it back different methods, it will cost some money. Yeah. Well, man, yeah, you're right about that. There's a lot of little costs, unexpected stuff that can kind of blindside you. Um, and, and lest people make a mistake here, moose meat, even from a great big mature bull is just outstanding meat. And I think you're doing yourself a disservice if you don't plan to bring it home. Yep. You can donate it up there in Alaska and somebody will really appreciate it, but you can get it home. That's the first thing to recognize. So when, when we did our moose hunt, we had a series of logistical challenges that we eventually solved pretty satisfactorily and a few unexpected, uh, of, you know, those unexpected costs. So the first one was weight. We were told we had a 55 pound weight limit each, and that includes all food and everything for a 10 day hunt. Plus you got to figure at least two or three days on the back end. Like you mentioned, if you get weathered in and your pilot can't come get you, now, I've heard a lot of stories from pilots that say, oh, their client got all bent out of shape because it was clear where their camp was and they couldn't figure out why I wasn't coming to get them and they thought I was just being lazy, maybe I had a hangover, blah, blah, blah. Well, Alaska has various different, you know, a lot of vastly differing weather systems and your pilot 40 miles away can be in fog so thick you can just about chew it, right? Yep. And he's not coming to get you because he doesn't want to die. And you ought to appreciate that and, and, you know, springboard off that and appreciate the fact that he doesn't want to kill you either. Yeah. <laughs> so if your pilot won't come get you 99% of the time, it's because he's legitimately concerned about the safety of flying and you need to respect that and support it rather than, uh, you know, complain about it. So just plan for it, plan for two or three days, extra days in camp at a minimum Yep. And bring the freeze-dried food to prepare for it, at least a survival quantity, you know, two meals a day or something like that. Yep. Buy good equipment that weighs as little as possible, but ma always remember you've got to have a, a couple of things in mind. You've got to have durability because you're going to be wading through alders and stuff that will tear a cheap rain poncho to shreds. And you're going to be potentially in some pretty heavy wind and rain. So even though you're carrying in a lightweight tent, you want it to be as light as possible. You're probably better off with uh, like a double wall tent with a really good rain fly and really solid tie down ability than you are with an ultra light with like a little skimpy rain fly or no, you know, just a single wall, whatever. Because being wet uh, makes you a lot more miserable while you wait out a storm. 
Yep. And then it, you know, you never really get dry in Alaska if, you know, once you're good and wet. So bring good rain gear. You can sacrifice a pound or two there and a good tent that'll keep you dry. Other than that, your pack and everything else has got to be as light as you can afford the quality for. Obviously, super light stuff costs more money. Getting to Alaska, there's three ways. You can drive, which adds a ton of flexibility. You, know, you can throw a giant uh, Pelican cooler or Yeti cooler in your truck, and you can get a lot of meat home, especially if you got like four coolers full of ice. And it, even if it takes you five days to drive back down to wherever you're going, you can rotate the ice, and it doesn't really cost you anything. But very few people have enough time in their lives today to take a week driving up and a week driving back on each end of their hunt. So that leaves you pretty much with flying. Fly Alaska Air. And to the, the guys listening, it's, uh, there's a very simple reason why. Early on, Alaska Air made it kind of their shtick that they would fly antlers and meat without questions. So you can, you can check a giant moose rack, a giant caribou rack onto the plane and they'll just congratulate you and take it right it doesn't matter if it weighs more than 50 pounds it doesn't matter if it's wider than the usual weight limit or or width limit i think they do have like a 72 inch maximum or if it gets over that you have to pay an extra fee or something like that but well if, you get, if you're getting a bowl that big you better have be happy to pay the extra fee yeah you just don't care at that point man so it's pretty simple. Stop at a hardware store, pick up a bunch of, of shop towels, like uh, you know the heavy-duty paper towels, a roll of duct tape, a roll of stretch wrap like you'd wrap furniture to move with, and either a bunch of tennis balls or a, a cheap section of garden hose. Pad that, that skinned-off bloody skull with shop towels. Wrap it real good with duct tape so it won't leak. Then stick a tennis ball or a, a short section of that garden hose over each tine and you know sharp tine a lot of moose tines are kind of nubbed off but and just bend it over so it's got kind of a rounded end and then wrap the whole thing with that stretch wrap good and tight and man you can check that right onto the plane yep uh, it's awesome so alaska air is really the way to go they fly out of seattle so, and portland both i think so you can just about get a flight to there and then connect up if you have to if alaska doesn't come to your home airport once you're there you're going to have to rent uh, vehicle unless you've got a pal already on site. So let's go with worst case scenario. You don't know anybody up there. Mm -hmm. If you're doing a 10 day drop camp hunt, whether it's for moose or caribou, black bear, whatever, you got to have a truck. Yeah, I guess if you really research, you might find a train going that you could catch both ways or whatnot, but plan on renting a truck and renting it for two dang weeks. Cause you got to drive up fly out, do your hunt, and then come back and get back to the airport. And you got to give yourself at least a day to handle your meat and so forth once you get off the, the bush plane, plus weather days. And one thing I would talk, I would insert in there, not to interrupt you, is, is uh, to do you ask the right questions, your, your rental, your vehicle rental company. Um, most of the, I know like if you're wanting to drive up the hall road to hunt caribou, on your own or drive up there to fly out most rental car the major rental car companies specifically have a line that, you, that you're not allowed to drive that up there now there are there are a couple smaller ones i know in town here that i think you can i think like alaska auto rental or something like that you can get a truck and and drive it up there and you 
I know the U-Haul place, some of the U-Haul places in town rent trucks. At least I've never had to rent one, but I know they say like 20 bucks a day or something painted on the truck. They're, you know, you get all the ugly U-Haul painting on there, but that could be an option. But whatever you're going to rent, look into the the rental agreement to see what you're going to do. Now, you know, if you're just going to ignore it and go drive up the haul road, well, that's kind of your, the, a risk you're you're taking so don't you know don't cry if you, if they they catch you on it and you get in some trouble but uh yeah yeah, yeah. that's really good information uh the haul road is a whole different yeah story when it comes to vehicles uh and i'd say additionally you know if you do find a company that's good with you renting and going up there you probably well served to consider getting their all coverage insurance just because you know that'll cover Anything, anything stupid that happens to you that's not you know, your fault, but really costly, you know? Yeah, rock chips. And, you know, a lot of people's, like, a lot of your, your personal vehicle insurance policies, a lot of them have, you just check and see what kind of coverage, because some of them do cover your rent. If you rent, they still cover you. Um, yeah. But, yeah, you know, stuff like, like the, probably the biggest one up here, and I don't know if they try to charge you for it, is rock chips and windshields i mean there's i don't think there's a windshield up here in fairbanks that stays intact for more than six months yeah but, <laughs> um you know with all the gravel the trucks dump in the winter but uh yeah now the funny thing is if you're gonna fly out you're probably only driving that truck for two days out of your entire rental yeah period yeah but you gotta have it there yep uh, unless you could find some kind of a shuttle service if you're not going too far, but everywhere in Alaska is far. So, um, man, what else? Well, we um, stayed in, a, yeah. Oh, sorry. I thought you were asking me. <laughs> no, go ahead. I was just kind of, no, I thought, I, I thought you were asking me, go ahead and finish <laughs> out your, <laughs> my rant here. Okay. Yep. So we stayed in a hotel before we flew out and it, we could have just driven to Toke on that trip and then through all, actually, they want to fly you out really early. So you just about need to stay in a hotel. And it helps because you're able to kind of consolidate your gear and weigh everything out. You can leave all your excess items in your locked pickup truck or whatever. I like a pickup because you can stick bags of frozen meat in the back or whatever, yep. not worry about getting blood everywhere. And then you meet your pilot early on. They check your all your weights and you fly out. Now, the pilots will usually say, look, your your baggage has to be no more than 55 pounds, not including your rifle. So they'll some of them will just tell you, look, if, if you can, put your camera on your body because cameras are often yeah. heavy. Put well, your that's binoculars what we're, on. That's what we're talking. We're talking guys in a super cub. In know, a so, super cub. Yeah, different different charters and airplanes will have their own weight limits, but they will let you know. Right. That's, that's correct. Yep. So I was thinking like the, the little bush planes, the, yep. the, that's the most rigorous type of flying out. If you're going out in a beaver or something, they're a lot looser and easier to, to deal with. But on a super cub, if you don't have things right, it, it can make flying difficult, right? Yep. And nobody wants that. So you can wear heavy stuff on your body, put your ammo in your pockets or whatever. Uh, and it's not about the as I understand it, it's not really about the overall weight as much as it is about a weight balance. They need to keep a certain amount of weight forward rather than getting it in the tail back where the cargo goes. Because when you're landing, if you if you 
encounter complications on your runway or something, that tail can get heavy and, and start to spin on you. And that, you know, that's just a bad day. Yeah. Um, so we hunted, then you got to bone your meat off, put it in meat sacks, help it load it on the plane. There's going to, if it's a bush plane, there's going to be a few shuttle sessions out, assuming you've shot a moose. A caribou has a lot less weight. Black bear has less weight and so forth, unless it's a real giant. Once you get out though, you're basically dropped next to your pickup with a whole ton of stuff to deal with. A lot of the air taxis will have a deep freeze that you can use overnight or something. You can stick at least some of your meat in there, but we ended up, there's a, a cold storage place there in Token. I don't remember the name of it off the top of my head, but you can Google it where it's like, you know, 20 bucks a day or something to store your meat there. So we took all of our bags of meat there. That was the first thing we had to do. Get the meat cool and frozen. Then we went, we cleaned up and everything, stayed overnight again at the hotel, picked our meat up. No, we didn't pick our meat up. We left it there because we had a trucking service take it down. Got in the truck the next morning and boogied the five and a half hours towards Anchorage where we'd flown in. Side note, you're better off flying into Fairbanks if you're going to hunt out of Toke. It's closer, but we flew into Anchorage. We had to make that drive with a couple of other business stops. We had to stop and wrap our antlers prep that we barely made our plane as the the short term we should have had an extra day on that end just so we didn't have to run around quite as crazy and try and yeah. deal with stuff if you're gonna cut and wrap your own meat like my brother did that's another at least extra day right and then oh, you yeah. have to plan yeah then you have to plan on some kind of boxes preferably a cooler type box a bunch of them and pay on the, you know, the check on fee and all that. And you can do that if you prefer that and you have the time to cut and wrap all your own meat, you can, um, take it all home on the plane with you. What we did though, is we hired Alaska express trucking to pick our, our meat up at that cold storage facility. So we had to pay for something like eight days worth of storage there. Yeah. Then Alaska express, they charged us, this has been a year and a half, almost two years ago, so it may have gone up a bit. But at the time, it was, I think, 550 bucks for meat only, 750 bucks for the entire moose, including the antlers and everything. We just left our meat. They picked it up. They basically stretch wrap it onto a pallet, and that's your pallet, load it on a refrigerated truck, and bring it home through Canada. And... Uh, it, it was a good way to get it home. We did get kind of blindsided. I'd been home about two weeks and, and kept expecting a call from Alaska Express to say, hey, we're coming across the border, whatever. We can meet you in a day and a half or whatever at such yeah. and such a place. When I got that call, they said, hey, we're two hours from Three Forks, Montana. Can you meet us there to pick up your meat? Well, I was a nine-hour drive south of there. <laughs> and... Of course, I about had a heart attack, and I said, holy smokes, all right, what are we going to do to work this out? And the truck driver said, well, call the owner. So I called Charlie, that's the owner, and he said, apparently I'd, I'd missed the boat somewhere. Both Neil and I had never been told that you're supposed to watch the truck's progress online. Oh. So they'll post the truck's progress online, and that way you can kind of figure out when it's going to be nearest to you. Yep. 
and we hadn't even known about that. So I guess, you know, that's partly our fault, but, uh, so thankfully the owner said, look, we got to make another stop late tonight in, uh, a place two hours from there. Just get there as fast as you can. And I'll have the truck driver hold the truck. So 20 minutes later, I was in my pickup roaring up I-15 toward Montana. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Well, that, that was fun. But, but hey, we go ahead. Oh, I'll just say, yeah, that's a good, uh, that is a good option for some guys, especially if that, if you look in the route, the route of that truck's going by nearby where you can get to, it's a, it's a good option for getting your meat back. Yeah. It actually really worked out well. And man, when I climbed in the back of that truck, uh, it was amazing. There was probably 30 different big moose racks in there, including a couple over 70, some giant caribou is just an awesome experience to get in there and see that. Yeah. <laughs> it's almost worth the nine hour drive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, uh, it's nuts and planning for that. Like you say, you know, if you'd had an extra day, it, it, it definitely takes some stress off. Like, you know, if your brother, if they, I guess they had enough time. It would have been pushing it, but we were, you know, able to get that whole moose cut up and and wrapped and mostly frozen by the time they had to leave. Um, but yeah, another thing is, you know, you got your, you know, your trophy prep, like your, your obviously your your antlers and stuff like that. You can usually fly with um, cape prep is another one. If you want a shoulder mount, you need to have a plan for what you're going to do with your cape, um, especially with a moose. Cause I don't know, I'm no speed demon, but a moose cape takes me about the better part of eight hours to, to get everything split, turned and fleshed and salted. And there, I mean, a big moose, a big bull moose cape will weigh as, almost as much as a brown bear hide. Um, it's a big job. And I just remember, I'll probably always remember a couple of years ago, got a call, through i think they got my number from this fur buyer i skinned for you know a couple guys you know wondering if i could take a couple of moose capes and you know so my first question is you know what condition you know and saying they had they had to fly out in like three hours you know or had to go to the airport in like three hours and so i'm like all right well what you know are they froze what you know no they haven't been froze they're several days old you know They'd been off, they'd been killed for several days and, you know, I just didn't have, I felt bad, but I just didn't have the time to deal with them. You know, uh, you know, I, I don't think I could fit two whole moose capes in one of these, you know, I got a couple of smaller chest freezers. I don't think I could even fit two capes in there. And I, you know, unless it's something I could jump on immediately, you know, it, it just wasn't going to work and I just didn't have the time and, so, yeah, I mean, that's that's something to consider, and it's going to cost some money. You know, it's going to cost you 300 350 bucks at least, I would say, to to have your moose cape prepped because um, it's it's a lot of work, and it's, uh, you know, some guys may be faster at it, but that's highly skilled labor. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. And it's and just part of it's you're paying for the, to inconvenience someone else because a lot, especially you come out of a field with, with a moose cape that's a few days old, maybe, um, you pretty much got to get right on it. The time it takes to freeze them and then thaw them again, you know, if it's a lot of times not worth the risk. Um, right. So that's, that's a big one that always sticks in my mind. I mean, another time I was, I had agreed 
guys had lined out for me to to handle shipping on these caribou and prep. They brought back a couple capes, I think, but they and they had lined that out ahead of time. So I told them, you know, all right, well, give me a call. Let me know when you're coming in. I'll meet you. And I got a call at four o'clock in the morning saying they were in this parking lot and had to be at the airport at six. Oh, geez. And I think part of it was they got weather delayed flying back out. And so I showed up and they had four caribou worth of meat and said, well, we don't really know what to do with meat. Do you, and fortunately I had room in my freezer and I, you know, I, so I just took all the meat and thankfully they took good care of it. That's another thing. If you're, if you're one, if you're also, you're wanting to donate some of your meat or whatever, and, you know, you want to find the place it's going to go to before you shoot it. And you also want to take, you know, especially if you're giving it away, you want to take really good care of keeping that meat clean. Um, yeah. Because you're not going to, you know, the same person's not going to take your meat again if it's garbage. Right. Yeah. Don't disrespect it just because you don't intend to eat it yourself. Yep. Yeah. Um, uh, man, you know, the, it's funny. I've never had to deal with the, uh, <laughs> the problem of bringing a moose cape home just because I don't have a house big enough to put a moose mount. No, They're I don't either. <laughs> they are someday huge, yeah. I, yeah, someday I hope to, and I'll deal with that at that point. But you know, right from the get go, it, a moose cape takes extra. Yeah. It, it, like you say, they're heavy. They're a full load on their own. If you're packing out over treacher, treacherous terrain, Yep. uh, just all by themselves, they're extra weight going out on your bush plane. And then you're dealing with them. Like you say, I would say almost the best, easiest way to get one home, assuming you want to mount your moose is use Alaska express, try and get that Cape out as soon as possible. What I would do, and, and I'm not the hide care guy that you are. So you may have a correction here for me, but I'd get it off that animal, keep it as clean as humanly possible let it drip just a little bit to make sure excess blood and stuff ran off of it, and then fold it up, roll it up, tie it nice and tight with a piece of paracord, and get it on that plane just as soon as possible. A lot of times, if you get an animal down early in your 10-day hunt or whatever you're doing, the pilot will come in to pick up that meat early. It may be a day or three, but he'll come in. Yep. Get him the cape and say, freeze this thing for me, if you would, and then just put it on the Alaska Express trucking and let your taxidermist deal with it when you get it home. Yeah, yeah, because if they can get it and get it get it frozen in a short amount of time, um, and that's probably the only the, that trucking is probably the only route I would suggest to send one back raw or uh, to send one back un unprepped. Aside right. from that, any shipping it's going to be so expensive and risky. Um, sending a cape unless it can be kept in refrigeration, kept frozen. Um, you know, aside from that, you just, it needs to be salt dried. Yeah. Salted and dried to, to ship back. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's just another thing to consider, you know, moose European mount looks pretty dang nice. <laughs> you know, the, yeah, it does. The yeah. That's one of my favorite ways. And I just, I don't like caping them. It's just, and that's another thing. If a guy has never, has never dealt with a, a full-grown bull moose before especially the Alaska Yukon ones you there I mean what, what was your thought the first time you walked up to a dead one? <laughs> oh, geez man you know I grew up butchering steers and stuff and I've shot 
Eland and Africa and whatnot that are comparable in size, but yeah. there's still this shocking recognition. It's funny. The first moose I ever shot was with a, an outfitter, Colin Niermeyer, that I really liked out of central BC. And he just kind of joked when we walked up to it and stood there looking at it in slight shock. He says, what have we done? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you'll have that kind of, the thing that gets me is how dang tall they are. They've got a massive body, but their legs are so long. You can lay down beside one and and they're way taller at the shoulder than I am. Oh yeah, I have, uh, most of them are like you know big bulls, every bit of seven foot tall at the shoulder. Yeah, uh, it's it's just incredible. So, uh, and then you you mentioned caping off a moose. Those hides are real thick in the neck and shoulders, especially during the rut where they're thickened up to to take you know, the battle scars and wounds and all that. And by the time you're trying to peel one off around the skull, you better be a man to keep a moose. Oh yeah. <laughs> yep. It ain't no, it's no joke. And, uh, and I'd say even if, even if you're not probably throw this in there, it's kind of, you know, field care is kind of a whole nother podcast in itself. But for someone that's never dealt with one, you know, you you want to deal with those moose as quickly as possible. Um, you know, whether, you know, for caping and especially, especially if you're going to cape them, cause it's going to take extra time to manipulate that moose. You know, if you're just doing it the way I'll do it, you know, you just get them on the back, yank the guts out. You can even do the gutless method if you want to. Um, and that works just fine. I've just found that it takes, you know, what, yeah. I just I like to get the guts out of them as quick as I can, just because they hold so much heat. Um, yeah, you can get bone just, sour pretty quickly on those moose. You know, so, I don't. It's not something to be super paranoid about, but it can sneak up on you pretty quickly, especially if you if it's cold weather and you think fairly cold weather, and, and you know you get a false sense of security. Um, I yeah. mean, I know guys that have. I know guys that have had. Even cut the thing up, throw it on a on a sled in the winter at thirty below, and had it bone sour because they didn't let it cool enough, and they wrapped it up in the hide. You know when they when they threw it on the sled. Yeah, sure. But uh, yep, that's <laughs> and it, just as a side note on the the sheer body size of a moose, you could easily fit a full grown large-bodied whitetail buck, antlers and all, inside the, the vital cavity of a moose. <laughs> yeah. I like to say, I mean, gutting a moose is almost is ideally a two-man job. One guy to one guy to pull on the on the windpipe and the other guy to cut. You yeah. Know, I've I've i I've dealt with several of them on my own. It just takes some time. And guys that do a lot of it, you know, it's it's not that big a deal. Especially for a for a novice though, you know, it's it's an intimidating chore. I mean, it, it seems like every one I shoot, I'm still like, man, this thing's big. I mean, I didn't get one last year, but the one before the year before that thing, he, I, I don't know if he was an old bull. He was a big bodied bull for only being, you know, a barely 50 inch bull. I mean, his, and I was just like, yeah, luckily I had my, I had access to, I just unloaded my four wheeler and could get it to him. So use my winch to yank him out of the brush pile he fell into and, and uh, kind of position him ideally for working on, but sometimes you don't you don't have that option. So, 
Yeah, they like to fall in bad spots. Yep. So a lot of times you're only going to have, your only option is going to be to start skinning and cutting, cutting parts and pieces off of them until you can manipulate them enough to, to get all the meat. I've had a couple of, of them like that. So, you know, I don't know really what I want to, what the point of saying all that is other than just be prepared to be a little overwhelmed if you've never dealt with one. Yeah. I, you know, I think that's an important note and it's also important though to not you know, like just be ready to be overwhelmed and then purely by virtue of that preparation, you're not going to be as overwhelmed. And then also be aware that it's going to take a whole bunch of time and don't be daunted by that. You yep. know, if you've got a hunting partner with you that is somewhat savvy and taking apart animals and you are yourself, you can do a moose in a matter of several hours. I tend to use the gutless method uh, just because if you pull the hide off the top side of an elk, uh, an elk, a moose, and then get the quarters either propped up on a nearby spruce or hung in a tree or something, they'll cool real well. Yeah. For whatever reason, the moose I've done have almost always been at night, and I've never got back to camp before about 2, 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning. But if you go to bed knowing, hey, it's nice and cool, all my meat is hung where the air, cool air circulating around it. Yeah, that's a good feeling. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. You know, if yeah, if you can, even if you can't hang them, if you can prop those quarters up, just get the hide off of them is the biggest thing. Because sometimes, you know, if, if wrong weather conditions, those quarters can spoil even if you just, you know, do like the old timer method. Like I'm sure still a lot of people do, you know, before you had game bags, just cut the quarters off right through the hair and uh that skin does keep the majority of the quarter clean but on a moose quarter unless it's super cold man you're really running the risk of of spoiling so good game bags and just rip i like to just get that hide off as quick as i can get them in a game bag and if you can't hang them you can a lot of times just prop them up and rotate them a little bit you know while they're still hot it's important to as they're cooling, if you got, if you have to lay them down on the ground or a tarp to roll them over periodically so that that, cause that there's so much heat in that muscle that if you lay it down on the grass, sometimes just having that heat not want to dissipate to the ground, um, can cause you some issues. But I mean, that's all getting into details that are a totally different, totally different ball game. Yeah, but I think they're, they're details that a lot of people worry about. And I think it's important, too, to say, you know, we're, it seems like we keep gravitating to talking about moose. And I, that's probably just because they're the most logistical challenge, logistically challenging of all the animals up there. If you're dealing with a caribou or a black bear or anything else, it's going to be a lot easier just because it's a smaller animal. Yep. Same sort of eventual plan. You still got to get it cool. You still got to transport it out of the field. You got to handle the capes and all that. But everything that you know we're we're talking about with moose applies to those smaller species. It's just easier. Yep. Yep. That's the, that's true. Um, I'm trying to think of like what the heck else. It seemed like there was. Uh, I mean, there's all sorts of minor details that that as you do your research, you'll know. I know. You know, some of your gear selection you want to base on on the area and places you're going. Like, you know, I know you, you got to plan on getting your, your stove fuel here in Alaska, which is 
you know, goes back to leaving some time on the front and back end because there's going to be some things that you have to pick up here. Yeah, um, you got to buy stove fuel there. You can get it at Walmart or Sportsman's or whatever. You know, and you, your and your particular stove. Um, yeah. Most places, like you know, any commercial commercial flight, you are not supposed to fly with those uh, compressed gas like jet boil canisters or MSR compressed gas canisters. Um, so a lot of, a lot of charter flights kind of look the other way. It's not because it's not really a big deal, but those are the rules. So some, some charter flights, you, you need to know their expectations. Some charter flights will not fly them. Um, so you are going to be stuck with using, you know, a white gas stove basically. Um, and other, others don't. So just know it's one of the things and most of the most of the charters have dealt with that enough that they have they have you know that in their information packets and in fact a lot of them that do you know like say require white gas or jet boils a lot of them you might ask them before you come what kind of stock they have back in their closet cuz i know i know those guys on Kodiak you know there's no sense in 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 buying jet boil fuel when you get to Kodiak because most of them they have a closet full of them that people just leave with them leave their extras with them because they can't fly them home yeah same thing goes for pepper spray i know zach told us he's got like 40 or 50 cans of pepper spray in his shack because people can't fly them out so yeah if you want to buy one buy one but like you say, often they'll have one you can just borrow and take in with you. Yeah. Also, on on all those planes, if you take pepper spray, it's got to be hung on the outside of the bush plane or whatever. They really yeah. don't want popping inside. <laughs> nope, nope, that'd be bad, bad, bad. Um, but yeah, you know, I don't another, know is there, yeah, let me know. Another another thing I would say about your planning and logistics is thinking about food. Uh, if you're going in in one of the bigger planes, take good food you're going to enjoy eating. But if you're going in on a bush plane where you're limited to 55 pounds or whatever, oh boy. It, and if you're going for 10 days, plan pretty much every meal. Plan enough of the little freeze-dried desserts that you don't get too much of you know withdrawals from having something sweet to finish off your day. Plan a few extras, but... I would say one of the more important things there, especially if you're older than about 35 or so when your digestive tract may have started getting a little bit picky, try the meals ahead of time. Pick yep. the ones you don't like because there's nothing worse than having to eat a meal that really tastes bad to you in the backcountry. And then eat enough of them in the weeks before your hunt. Say two weeks ahead of time, start eating two or three of them a week to just acclimate your digestive system to eating that concentrated freeze-dried food, you know, whether it's from, uh, you know, uh, Peak Refuel or Mountain House or whatever. There's a a company called Alpen Fuel out of Montana that I did a podcast with on my podcast. They... Here, uh, uh, what's that? Yeah, I say they sent me a, they they sent me one of their, because they're a subscription box company, right? Uh, Well, they have a subscription service, yeah. Okay, yeah, because I I got one of those boxes, and a company like that's a pretty handy thing to do, especially if you do a lot of backcountry hunting, you know, because that's what they're doing is they give you a variety of of foods, you know, snacks and stuff like that send you, and a lot of that stuff, man, I never would, 
that like that's they make that their job is to find all the cool like good interesting um enjoyable foods and that you can just therefore go get on your own yeah uh well an alpine fuel like you say you know they make a specialty out of it so they they learn about the the cutting edge stuff first and they share that information with with people and they do have you know some uh discounts and stuff for guys that they'll help you put together a full meal plan from a whole bunch of different resources and companies and set you up so uh, it really simplifies your planning if you got the money to just go with it in one big chunk yeah. like that or whatever but <coughs> excuse me i would say it is important though to make sure you got quality food adequate food and that you've acclimated your system to it yeah yeah absolutely um oh, one other yeah, thing you know yeah. you You've talked about um, picking a partner, a hunting partner for sheep hunts, and yeah. how critical it is to have somebody that'll go the distance with you and that'll, you know, that you work well with together, that'll pull you through your low spots and that responds well to your efforts to pull them through their low, you know, low spots so you don't offend each other and end up getting mad and hating yep. each other before <laughs> the hunt's out. That that's really important. Uh, I think in any type of backcountry hunt, but especially when you're traveling a long way and putting in a fairly significant investment in money and time, and facing a whole bunch of logistical challenges, including you know the awareness that there are going to be surprise complications yep. along the way. Man, don't do a hunt like this with somebody that you haven't, you know gained a pretty good uh, awareness that you work well with them. Yeah. yeah. That's a recipe for disaster. Oh, yeah. You know, considering, all, you know, it, it best case, it can make for just a miserable time. Worst case, you know, I mean, it's a lot of times it's how stuff you've saved up for and looked forward to to years. And, I mean, yeah. talk about a bad taste in your mouth if you get a trip ruined like that. You know, it's bad enough for us that live here and get to do this kind of stuff every year. You know, guys that struggle finding finding a reliable hunting partner. You know that. Yeah. You know it's it's bad enough when you live here and can do it every year, man. When it's your your once or twice in a lifetime opportunity, man. I mean, it can. <laughs> I don't yeah. know how to say how to say you know better ways to say it can be bad, but it's just definitely something you want to you want to know know what you're yeah. getting into because it, it, at worst case it can be uh, very dangerous too it can yep and and whether you're i mean let's face it it's most of this stuff is type two fun right yeah. you're sitting there in a downpour and knowing you got six more hours to sit on this vantage point before it gets dark and you get to go get something to eat and you're already cold and you're just loving it man yep. it takes a certain personality type but you got to make sure that uh you don't just find a partner of that type, but you got to be that kind of partner. Yeah. Always pull a bit more than your own weight. Make sure you're always covering at least your half of the expenses. You're way better off arguing over who gets to pay the bill at the hamburger joint rather than whose turn it is, who has to pay for it this time, right? You want to yeah. be that kind of partner that every guy wants to hunt with. Another thing is, gosh, try and find something that somebody that has – and this is a little bit of a sensitive subject, but a, a similar physical capability to you or maybe a little better, I, you know, if you have to go one way or the other, there, there are times where you can end up actually 
with somebody that has a bad back or a bad knee and they twist their knee or something, those things, you may be that guy that has a football injury or something. You got to protect that, but be aware of it. Make sure your partner's aware of it so there aren't any surprises. And then when it comes time to pack meat, holy smokes, you know, that's when really the, the deep down gutted out toughness comes out and you got to not just have somebody along that you can count on to pull you out of a stream if you tip over and you're bobbing yeah. down there trying to keep your head up or whatever, but that you're that guy also that'll dump his pack and, and run downstream and try and get out there and save your partner or whatever. Yep. You got to have somebody that you <laughs> excuse, excuse me. I think I caught your cough, Tyler. Yeah. You got to have somebody funny and you know this is kind of kind of getting dramatic on us, but you know even though it's one in 10,000 or you know throwing a, a just a guesstimated number out there, but that you'll ever get in trouble with a bear, but you want somebody that will stand his ground and if he has to shoot a bear off the top of you, he can do it without shooting you too, you know. Yeah. Uh, there's there's a lot of stuff you want somebody that you can count on for your life basically. Yep, cuz that can be what it is and I th- and I think you know, and I like to tell people to think about everything you do and just get in that mentality of thinking about everything you do cuz the consequences of mistakes can be a lot higher, you know, both sometimes in safety and in discomfort or not getting animals, etc. um than people might be used to you know sometimes you do something stupid you know where you're at you know your day's ruined whereas it can can really wreck a hunt sometimes some up here if you you do something stupid um and not necessarily meaning everything's like a stupid or not stupid decision but you know things like thinking about thinking steps ahead like where you know are you going to shoot that moose when he's standing right there or you know for sheep stuff like that like you know what are you going to do after you shoot that moose if he what if he goes and dies in that pond do you have stuff with you to swim out there and tie a rope on him and retrieve him you know get him drug over to shallow enough water to cut him up um you know sheep sheep and mountain goats you know that non-residents aren't usually going to have to deal with with that on their own without a guide but uh you know it's like god do i really want to shoot him right there it's like all right it's a pretty long shot am i sure i'm going to be able to get to him you know where he falls um just stuff like that you know like you know do i want to shoot this moose a mile away from camp um yeah you know, because like I don't know, my it's just kind kind of funny. My uncle says my grandpa would never shoot a moose he couldn't back his pickup up to, and I know why. <laughs> I learned why pretty quick. The very first, yeah. moose, the very first moose I ever killed is still my biggest one, and he was out in the middle of this looked like a night you know grassy flat, which ended up being water. He died in you know almost hip deep water. And oh jeez. I was with my dad and my uncle and I was like 17 at the time and shot him. And as soon as he went down and it starts splashing everywhere, my uncle looked at my dad and said, you know what our dad would tell us right now? <laughs> you know, said, You're on your own, you know, but that was, that was a good, like, you know, for my first, this is the first big game animal I ever killed. Actually, I got started a little late, you know, in the, in the kill, figuring out the killing side of things. 
But, Sounds uh, like you uh, got started with the bang, though. Oh yeah, it was uh, learned. You know, learned several premium lessons on that moose. But, yeah, no doubt. But yeah, stuff like that. I mean, it's it's you know a lot of things up here, especially. I like to say that little little issues can come become big issues really fast, and uh, just as much as anything, it's a mentality of thinking ahead, thinking several steps ahead, um, and considering a lot of things. I mean, everybody sometimes there's a time to just get caught up in the moment and. No, I'm going to go kill that thing no matter what it takes right now because it's that special of an animal. Um, but you got to be able to deal with the consequences too. So, you know, like yeah. going off what you mentioned, understanding your you and your hunting partner's physical capabilities, mental capabilities, um, that, you know, you base what you do off of all, taking all that into consideration. Yeah. And I think then on, on top of that, you got to be able to think on the fly a little bit and adapt when necessary and keep a good attitude throughout it. You know, there, there are some guys that are pretty capable, but when things go south, they, they get sour. Yep. You want somebody that's real capable and that can adapt on the fly. You know, they, they look ahead, but when things go different than planned, they, they're already working through it and they do so cheerfully. That's a, a big advantage, you know, oh, but yeah. I think, you know, the, uh, the upshot of all this is that almost every Alaska hunt is a challenge and that's part of the great lure of it, the great draw, because the greater the challenge, almost invariably, the greater the reward at the end. Yep. Oh yeah, absolutely. If, especially for a certain, you know, I mean, the type of people that Alaska really attracts, um, as far as hunting goes, that's what you like. I mean, I can't think of any other logical reason to be as obsessed with sheep hunting as I am, you know, or why, why I'm, you know, taking my, taking my recurve this year. I mean, by logically, it's not a very smart thing to do if I want to kill one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you got a lot of sheep to your, uh, credit, Tyler. I'm, I'm excited to hear about this this recurve sheep adventure. Yeah, I hope so. I should be in the middle of suffering by the time this one, by the time this one is, is this episode's up. So hopefully I'll have good news. I mean, it's, it's just something that kind of uncharted territory for me. So I don't know what to think. It's pretty intimidating, but at the same time, they, they are, they're just animals. They're, they're yeah. not, they're not some magic thing you know it's just uncharted territory so that part of it is you know it it just ups the level of the normal pre-sheep season anxiety sure um, now now when is opening day this year it is on august 10th wow so we're getting real close and oh, yeah. i've been seeing pictures of you on instagram and whatnot uh showing some pretty amazing groups you're shooting at extended distances with a recurve, you know, distances most guys would never even try to shoot. Yeah, I think, I mean, I've been putting some serious time in, and especially, you know, as guys that listen to this podcast know, um, I, well, folks, I shouldn't just say guys, um, I've, uh, you know, changing my whole shot back in December, and I've been putting a lot of, <laughs> shot a lot of arrows this over this past, you know, eight months now, nine months. And, uh, 
shooting better than I ever have in my life. And, uh, I think if I can get, if I can get under 55 yards and, you know, animal, assuming all the factors are there, like, you know, the, a relaxed animal that is offering a good shot and, you know, and conditions are right so that I feel like I can execute a good shot. If I'm under 55 yards, they're going to be in some pretty significant danger. <laughs> yeah. Well, man, I think if anybody can do it, you can. So I, for one, just let me just say this. I can't wait to see the pictures, man. Yeah, I hope so. It's, uh, it's, uh, <laughs> hope everybody's, I, I'm, Hopefully I don't just have to do sunset pictures and whatnot. So we'll see. It feels like it'll take a miracle for it to happen, but they are just animals. So, um, yeah. it may, it may just, it'll happen eventually. It may just take a while. So that's the exciting thing about it though, too. It could be, could be opening day, could be, you know, a three year frustrating journey, but we'll see. At least yeah. I'm just, I'm just thankful for the opportunity to do it, you know. Man, if I wasn't so stupid busy this summer, I'd invite myself up to be your caddy and carry your pack around behind you. Oh, that would be nice. Well, I got it since I'm going. I'm going to Africa in October. I could use something like that to get used to that kind of gentle, <laughs> gentleman's hunting, right? <laughs> Which you just, uh, yeah. Before we get out of here, you were just over. You were in Namibia. I was. was it? Yeah. I was. And you got it. Yeah, I want to hear. I know I, I heard about it on your podcast. I want to hear at least at least the short version of your your hippo. You got a, a hippo with uh, well, you just tell a story <laughs> in, the, in the details. You know better than yeah. I do. Anyway. So I ended up uh, hunting a, a hippo over there with kind of a unique tool. I'm a a bit of a, a classic gun, vintage gun, unusual gun nut, right? And uh, so. I got a, a Winchester model 1886, one of the new made models by Winchester, and then had my good friend Doug Turnbull at Turnbull Restorations. He's pretty much the world's foremost expert in Winchester and Colt firearm restoration, and he does some really nice work on, on current firearms as well. Anyway, he rebarreled it for me, chambered it to 475 Turnbull, which is his own cartridge. It's just a little less powerful than the classic 470 Nitro Express dangerous game cartridge. And color case hardened the action, put nicer wood on it, and and then we went hunting together. And this hippo hunt, I'll just give you the, the quick and dirty version because otherwise I'll get excited and take an hour to tell the story. <laughs> We so hippos in this area where we were hunting, which was in the on the Okavango River in northern Namibia, with my good friend uh, Jock Strauss. He's a Ph professional hunter uh, and owner of uh, Kovas Adventure Safaris, Kovas Hunting Safaris. I always get that wrong. Anyway, on a sunny day, sometimes we'd see as many as a hundred hippos in a day just hunting other species. When it came time to hunt. The hippo, though it was cold and windy, and those are two conditions that hippos don't like, so most of them were in the water. We wanted to shoot one on land, and man, we floated the river most of the day. Finally, found a big old bull sunning himself on a cut bank of the river on the near the tip of an island, maybe 300 yards down from the tip, and we could just see his. Hind end as we drifted into view around a bend in the Okavango River there and 
jock jerked his binoculars up and took one look and he said, man, that's a giant bull. And I looked, all I could see is his butt sticking out from behind the reeds, right? I didn't know if the reeds were four feet high or 12 feet high. If that cut bank was two feet or 12 feet. I said, how can you tell? And he said, it's quiet for a second. He said, I don't know, man, but I can tell that's a giant bull. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So we, uh, excuse me, we, we're just, we cut the motor he left it kind of putting, like, you know, trolling speed and, and lifted the propeller out of the water and we were just drifting. For a little bit, I wondered why he didn't cut the motor entirely. I found out after a bit. Now, let me back up just a little bit. When we'd been going down to the boat the first time, I said, because these are tough guys, right? Yeah. And they, they didn't look like they were going out on the water. I said, you guys have a life jacket for me? I'm not afraid to be that guy, you know? And <laughs> And Jock looked at me and kind of laughed, and he said, we do, if you want it. But first, let me give you your brief. In this little, like a 12-foot aluminum skiff or whatever it is, he said, if a hippo tips us over or bites the boat and capsizes us, swim down as close to the bottom of the river as you can. He said, always be aware of which bank is closest to us. Now, this river in most areas was about, oh, 50 to 150 yards wide. He said, get down low and swim as far as you can before you surface. And when you surface, don't splash. He said, if you can get to the shore, do it and just crawl right up the sand out of the shore because as soon as you surface, the hippo will be on you. If you stay underwater, you're not a threat. They just kind of see you as another, you know, inhabitant of huh. the under river. And then he looked at me and said, you still want that life jacket? <laughs> <laughs> I said, nope, nope, I'm good. So anyway, we're drifting on this current down toward the tip of this island, and Peter, the tracker, was up in the front of the boat scanning ahead of us, and suddenly he started jabbering in his native language and pointing at the water kind of at an angle, and man, Jock dropped the propeller in and revved that motor, and we got out of there fast. And I looked back just in time to see a hippo surface with a surge right where our boat had been. He was we were in his bedroom, and he was coming to let us know he wasn't happy about that. Jeez. Yeah. I think I've seen, so anyway. I've seen a video. There was a video floating around the internet of of a hippo. You can just see the wake coming, and these guys hammer that throttle, and the thing comes up right behind the boat. Anyway. Yeah. Exciting stuff. So, anyway, long story short, we ended up uh, at well, and when we gunned the motor, that hippo that was sleeping ahead, the bull we were after, stood up, took two steps into the reeds, and he was gone. And we'd been looking all day for a huntable hippo. So I was like, ah, you know, of course it would happen. But we got on the tip of the island. We used the long oars to pull the boat over there and got up on it silently. We ended up stalking past a herd of Cape buffalo that was glaring at us out of a thicket. And then, uh, yeah. And as we crossed a little swale and then a little rise, we're maybe 80 yards from where we hoped the hippo was. We jumped a big crocodile that went slithering down. He was up sunning himself basically in the same direction that we were going. We gave him a minute, kept going, and I wanted to get close. So we were maybe 30 yards from where we hoped the hippo was, and we could see a little alley through these tall reeds. They were 12 to 16 feet high. And we jumped the dang croc again, and he he plunged right down in this little canal in the bottom, kind of a natural waterway, probably made from centuries of crocodiles hauling themselves in and out to sun, you know. And 
made a big old splash, and I thought, well, heck, if the hippo was here, he's gone now. Because they, they can slide into that water in a in a heartbeat and just be gone, you know, yeah. they submerge. And he had been bedded only a few feet from from the edge of the river. Now, the main reason we needed to, to do this a certain way was we were at this point within about a quarter mile of the Botswana border. And if the hippo got in the water and died and they sink and it mm-hmm. takes 45 minutes to two hours for them to float up in most cases in a slow flowing river you just patrol the river then when they submerge you hook onto them with a toe and pull them back to camp yeah in a fast flowing river you can't do that because they'll go miles you never recover them yep. this one was slow flowing but we were about to the border and the river was going to botswana so if we killed a, a hippo and he got in the water he was lost Right. Yeah. He'd he'd go all the way into the next country before he came up, and we couldn't go after him. So anyway, we got into where we could see in that alley, and the hippo was still there. He was facing straight away, and I've said this before, but man, he looked like the back end of a VW microbus. Just big, big animal. I was shooting a hand-loaded 500 grain bullet for my first shot, soft nose, trophy bonded bear claw, followed by. Most of a magazine full, you know, big lever action magazine full of solids, 500 grain solids, mm-hmm. non-expanding bullets. And anyway, I said, I don't have a shot. And PH had the, the shooting sticks up and he said, just wait, they'll turn broadside. Again, I don't know how he knew this stuff, huh. but he was right. Slowly the bull just, it took him maybe 10 minutes, but he'd take a step to his right with his front legs and then just chill. At one point, quartered away. He put his nose on the ground and slept Hmm. for like five minutes without moving. Finally, he got almost full broadside, but he was starting to get aware that something was different. I think the bird sounds were different. He could just, there was something, you know, he had sensed that we were there and he slowly started walking and hesitated just for a half second before going into the, the reeds. And, uh, I brained him. I hammered him right under the ear because his head was still ever so slightly quartering. Usually you draw a line between the ear and the eye for a side brain shot, but he dropped hard and then convulsed head shot up in the area, his back, and he he started to roll. He'd kind of fallen back to a quartering away thing. So I shot him through quartered with a solid. He flipped over. I shot him through quartered from the other side with another solid, and he rolled out of sight, and that was it. (laughs) He was dead. (laughs) Man. It was a pretty dang exciting hunt. Yeah, that's, oh man, I mean, going down the, the island, I mean, here we just got to, you know, I guess, you know, moose are probably as more dangerous than bears, but you go through the island and you got Cape Buffalo, crocodile, and a hippo, which hippos, you know, at least they say kill more people than anything over there. Yeah, they do. And they don't typically charge like a lion or buffalo or elephant can on land unless you're between them and the water they want to go in or if you get between them and they're young. Yeah. But they will flat out run over you. Once you're in the water is when they're the most dangerous because mm. anytime you get in their territory, they'll come try and kill you or drive you out. Wow. Uh, and they tend to bite a lot of little dugout canoes in half and then chomp on anything that splashes, you know, but. On the, the cool end of the thing, I walked up to this, and it it was estimated at three tons, 6,000 pounds. Jeez. <laughs> that is a lot of animal, let me tell you. That's as heavy as a full-size pickup truck, right? Yeah. Jeez. And uh, so 
just a, a, an incredible, incredible animal. Small, weird bit of trivia. They're not hard to roll over because they're so round and their legs are kind of little and they fold up into their body. You, four of us could roll them over and over. Wow. Um, but when we got back, we, you know, the, the outfitter made a call or two to let them know we'd got one. By the time we'd taken some pictures, got back in the skiff and got over to the, the main shore, there were already 12 or 15 of the local guys from the village gathered because we'd promised them the meat for their yearly festival. Yeah. I've never seen such a grateful bunch of people. They were like just brimming with excitement because we'd basically just given them 6,000 pounds of meat for their festival. Oh, they yeah. were so stoked. It was sharpen just up, it was sharpen an up awesome the knives. <laughs> yeah. And we ate some of it. Hippo's fantastic meat. We actually ate the hippo tongue, which is a real delicacy over mm. there. And once you get over the thought that I'm about to bite into a hippo tongue, <laughs> it was really, really good. Wow, that's awesome. Man. Yeah. Man. Good stuff. Yeah. Well, uh, probably better sign off here. Now it looks like we've had you <laughs> had a hold of you for about two hours. But uh, that's okay. It's kind of the way I like to go. And it's always... I don't know, always a lot of fun, a lot of fun talking to you and, you know, shooting stories back and forth. Don't get to do it near as much as I'd like to. Yeah, no worries, man. I really enjoy visiting with you too. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, you'll definitely better, better spoken than I have. A podcast is a great, I mean, you're a great writer, but a podcast is, uh, I mean, a great thing for for you as well, because you have such a good voice for it. It's a very you know, very easy to listen to podcasts. So, um, I'm really happy to, happy to see you jump into that. Cause it's kind of a, you know, and you and I had talked, it's sometimes seems like it's a sat, uh, the hunting space is kind of a saturated market, but you know, if, if anybody has, you know, some aspect or angle on it that they're real passionate about, man, go for it. You know, if, if it ends up not, not working out, it doesn't work out, but, uh, I'm really glad to see you have yours and, uh, I think it's I think it's gonna gonna be a really good thing in the long run. Well, thank you, man. I really appreciate that, especially coming from you, because like I said earlier, you're pretty much the guy that inspired me to try one on my own. So, uh, do you mind if I plug my like Instagram? Oh no, yeah, and all yeah. That? That's that was going to be my next question. Oh, okay, cool. Uh, so yeah, if guys are interested in following the podcast, I, I have a page for that. It's just at Backcountry Hunting Podcast, and then my own is at Joseph Von Benedict. It's an odd name, but there aren't many like it, so it'll probably pop up if you just start typing it in. Benedict with a K, and uh, hit me with any questions or anything on backcountry hunting. I like to take the good questions and make episodes out of them and sometimes get my good buddy Tyler Friel on to help me answer them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, occasionally. Well, and one thing I notice is you do you do several episodes on your own and it's one of very few podcasts that I've ever listened to that are still like very like very uh, tolerable isn't the right word because it makes it sounds like it's just tolerable but like very good to listen to even just doing solo i have yet to do a solo one on my own yet for that reason um because i would probably be pretty rough on the listener but uh anyway yeah <laughs> i if, doubt uh, that <laughs> so yeah if uh yeah you guys everybody ought to go go check out that it's uh back backcountry hunting podcast and uh 
If uh, if you like Tundra Talk, uh, always appreciate you leaving a good review on iTunes or whatever platform you listen on. If you have any comments or questions, you can email podcast at tundratalkak.com. And uh, yeah, thanks, Joseph. Good to talk to you. Hey, my pleasure, buddy. It's an honor. All right. Thank you.